When we hear the name Jack London, we immediately think of his famous works, White Fang, The Call of the Wild, books and, and movies uh, that I remember as a child. Born and raised in the 50s and 60s in New England, uh, Jack London was uh, one of my favorite reads, along with others like the Hardy Boys and other, other uh, classic rights. But he was more than a writer. Some say... As a matter of fact, this one expert says that he was a champion of social change. I'm talking today with Cecilia Tishi. She is a academian. She has written uh, a number of books, but her latest one, Jack London, A Writer's Fight for a Better America, has just hit my desk. And I read most of the book over the past couple of weeks and... There's a lot of stuff in here I never had a clue about. Good morning, Cecilia. Good, good morning. <laughs> good morning, Mr. Grasso. Good. good to be with you. Thank you very much. Um, why was Jack London, uh, why is he, why do you say he's a, he, he was a champion of social change? This is something that most people don't know about London. He, uh, he was an activist. Um, he uh, toured the world. He saw a lot of things that, other elites did not see. So why was he a champion of social change? Well, Greg, I think his, his beginnings as a poor boy uh, who had to work at some of the jobs that in his lifetime people were, were really sacrificing their lives for instilled in him a lifelong commitment to try to get the American public on board to understand what was off the rails, I'll say off the rails in the great age of railroads. Uh, London, if we look into his, his early life, uh, we're, we're before the age of the, of, of the great adventures, the South Seas sailing, uh, covering boxing championship matches for the Hearst Corporation, war correspondent, and so on. But if we look at what he did in his teens, part of his jobs were the kind of jobs a, a, a kid might have. He delivered papers. He set pins in a bowling alley. He helped the Iceman. Um, that's one thing. And, his, and the, the nickel and dime wages did help his family. They were, they were scrambling to get by. Hmm. But he had some other jobs that were characteristic of industrial-era labor toil, I should say. And, and let me just, hmm. if I may, tick those off a little bit. Please. He, he worked in a jute mill, turning out horse blankets and, and twine and burlap-type bags, hmm. 10 cents an hour for shifts so long that he couldn't leave till the boss said, you can go. And often those hours were well toward 20. Then he worked in a cannery, seasonal work, but he saw how lethal was the machinery. He saw co-workers' fingers nipped off, sliced off, um, and only because he had such reflexes was he uninjured. But then he was, I'll say, seduced into believing he could start at the bottom uh, with this electric trolley company and rise to a managerial executive position. The bottom was a basement bunker full of coal, and he shoveled coal into a fiery furnace to heat up a boiler. 
um, shoveling and shoveling, his wrists swelled, throbbed, he strapped leather and kept going. And then he learned that he was being paid less than two men who had previously had that job and that he was not going to rise one bit. And I think if he hadn't quit that job, he might have been permanently disabled in his wrist. One more job. He worked in a steam laundry um, at, a, at a boys' school. It was highly mechanized, uh, two workers, and, and they were working, um, so to speak, um, you know, in service to the to the students, starching, ironing, uh, vats of scalding starch. One of Jack's friends came by and and saw him and said, "Jack, they've turned you into a robot. You're hired out as a slave." So I would say, Greg, those those jobs. He realized Jack did that. This was the kind of work that too many industrial age. Um, Young guys like him were toiling their lives away, uh, and he determined, really, that that his principle would be that in this great, rich, abundant country, full of such manufactured goodies that everybody should have, but too few were able to, to commandeer, that he would, in principle... In his writings, novels, short stories, and let's, you know, 50 books he, he wrote, hundreds of short stories, many, many of them have embedded in them messages for the reading public saying, essentially, the organization of America is so unbalanced that people are, people are working out their bodies like horses getting ready for the glue factory. Um, we need to do better. Everybody deserves a shot. Uh, and and London never, you're absolutely right, we don't think of him as a reformer. And he didn't want to be thought of as a, a propagandizing reformer. Uh, his messages were were touchdown messages, like in the middle of a novel, you'd find something, or, or a short story, because, because two, two points... <laughs> Uh, a very prestigious figure, William Dean Howells, very prestigious, uh, said, people do not like to read about the life of toil. So there was one strike. The second, uh, uh, Stephen Crane, Red Badge of Courage author, said, um, preaching is fatal to art in literature. You want, you want spiritual... Um, guidance, mm-hmm. seek out a house of worship. And, and those, two, those two messages, it was like a headset on, on uh, London, of both ears. So he knew that if he was going to be popular with the public, earn rich royalties, and he did, he had to be an entertainer. Uh, he had to attract people. People had to want to read his his stuff. So he was very careful, but he was also very clear. Uh, his point was to get inside the reader's head, even at a subconscious level, even subconscious. So I know I'm sort of going on and on, but Mm-mm. let me just, Greg, if I can just add one thing, because here's the phrase he used. He wanted to stir a, this is the quote, a noble discontent. Noble, because 
the best of, of moral and ethical conscience, thought on the part of his readers, but a discontent about the conditions. And he put those conditions in his, in his writings. Whoa. You know, being so young and um, having that kind of insight uh, blows me away. Um, the fact that he understood uh, uh, racial uh, opposition, uh, racial uh, injustice at, at that age, it, it blows me away. And, and this was, um, you know, coming into the 20th century. Um, yeah. I, I mean, just <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I, 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 I know. And, you know, sometimes London is accused of being just a racist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, setting aside class as if he's he is, sees himself as an Anglo superior uh, being, mm. and there are some there are plenty of statements that support that view. But if you read deeper, you see that on racial terms, purely racial terms, London takes out after whites just as much as non-whites. He he said, for instance, that um, that wherever whites go the non-white people seem to rot, be hmm. victims of the rot that the whites bring to their, to their islands uh, or wherever. Uh, he also called the white race those who loot, thieves, really, looters. So if, you, if we're looking at how he treated different ethnic and racial groups, put the whites in there. But I would say, Greg, that we need to note Jack London growing up as a as an underdog in our society, understood very well that that underdogs deserved a better shot, and um, and that that no matter who they were, they might be non-white. There's a story of his about a South Sea Island black uh, young guy. He's a prince in his tribe, and uh, his name is Mauki, M-A-U-K-I. Um, what we learn is that he's been he's been more or less enslaved to work on the coconut plantations, um, and he's tortured and tormented by an overseer who is German. And at the very end of the story, he gets his revenge. And by that time, the reader is is so supportive of him. He escapes. He's free. He's he's got his. But, you know his that that German overseer has got his comeuppance, uh, and once again it's Jack London rooting for the underdog. Um, I would say also, and we need to know this: when he saw uh, an, an athletic competition between between his people, whites uh, and non-whites, uh, and I'm thinking of the Jack Johnson. Jim Jeffries championship fight. London was a war, was a uh, sports reporter for that fight. 1910, Reno, Nevada. Um, people gathered for a whole week of of expectation and celebration. Mostly whites gathered, hoping that Jim Jeffries, of course, would prove the superiority of the white athlete. No, Johnson uh, was the master, as Jack London said. Uh, and London, yes, he would have preferred that the white uh, boxer uh, prevail, but he knew who was the better boxer, and he said so. 
he did not uh, hedge or mix words in these terms. So I think if if anybody's thinking, oh, that racist Jack London and some of the feminist groups do, I would say start reading. Hmm. Well, how do you think he'd be perceived today? I mean, the twentieth turn of the twentieth century, nineteen uh, hundreds, a totally different time. Um, uh, and, well, I, and you know, there's a lot more people on the earth nowadays. A lot more academias. A lot more people reading. A lot more politics. Oh, don't oh. get me started on politics. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got a 45 right here. I'm ready to pull the trigger. Um, so, I'm wishing that I had one. <laughs> okay. Well, I got a cousin in New York who can help you. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're out in Idaho, where 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 it's the, you know it's the real West. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, it's the real West. Actually, I came out here 30 years ago and I saw this uh, sh- um, rifles on the on the uh, in the pickup trucks in the back oh, window. Yeah. It's like, yeah, baby, <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> uh. So so <laughs> you put down roots. You put down. Well, today. London today, okay. Um, well, for one thing, he would clearly be on social media. I think uh, so. He would be sending out his messages, and along with his fiction, um, he he um, <laughs> was very interested in the new motion pictures that were coming out, and what and the possibilities. You referred to movies made out of his his uh, fiction, sure. uh, and and some of the old five reelers uh, were were mm. Jack London adaptations. Uh, somebody said they're pretty awful. Nevertheless, it was a, it was a new medium, and he was very interested. One thing, what here's what what uh, would be different today from then. Back then, he was born in 1876. Right. In that year, there was a blowout exposition in Philadelphia to celebrate 100 years past the Declaration of Independence. That was the, the country was a century old. Most people think of the Declaration, not so much the Constitution. Anyway, 10 million people, summer of of uh, 76, came to Philadelphia, marveled at all the exhibits, um, military, civilian, glassware, tableware, wonderful, wonderful new consumer products. There was an expo in the expo of taxidermed animals. They were mixed, the animals, with artifacts from what was called the Red Man. So Native American materials mixed in with the stuffed animals. Um, there, was, there was an embedding of, of a racial uh, kind, of, kind of context. Hmm. Uh, and at the, same, at the same World's Fair, there was, playing music, a darky southern plantation band darkies playing music so there again racial assumptions that non-whites are darkies from the plantation mm. that native americans uh well they're you know, they're out there with the wolves and grizzlies uh and so this is the world racially that london was brought into and i should add that his mother and he later uh, sort of called her on this that she had prejudiced him against some of the immigrant groups, the the Italians, the Eastern Europeans, and and he felt that she had unnecessarily and wrongly colored his view um, of of racial groups. Mm. So that's the world he was he he grew up in, uh, and to a remarkable extent, 
got a got a kind of mental handle on and saw what what had gone wrong with that kind of racial uh, thinking. For instance, when he went to Hawaii, and he was wined and dined, it was his, his own sailboat, he had commissioned it, um, they sailed into Pearl Harbor and saw Diamond Head, uh, and some of the elites uh, on the island, the the pineapple princes and the sugarcane barons, mm-hmm. and they thought, oh, great, the celebrated Jack London, uh, he's our man. Uh, he'll, he'll see the islands the way we want him to see. Uh, he'll see that our, our acres of cane fields um, for sugar and the pineapple plantations were the, the, the way Hawaiian uh, experience should, should be, and, and that the territory is a good thing. Um, what Jack saw is that the native Hawaiians had really lost their land, yeah. that it had been stolen from them, and that, that those who were working in those fields in the blazing sun um, were, in a sense, de facto slaves themselves. There were groups from, from the Azores, from China, from Japan, they're out there in the fields. The cane fields at a distance would look lovely and green. Close up, as Jack London saw, um, the blades of a sugar cane stalk, the leaves, are like serrated saw, saw blades. Sure. And there would be hives of, of, of wasps mm-hmm. nested there that mm-hmm. the workers would suddenly encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, the terrible heat. And there were stinging centipedes, uh, evidently really, really huge. So the workers had to dress head to toe to protect themselves, yeah. uh, and there, and including women, and women with little babies, and, and dragging these, their, you know, diaper bags and so on. Well, Jack's hosts... Uh, Sort of, sort of put out their arms and said, "There it is." But our our major problem is a labor supply. <laughs> the Hawaiians don't want to do this work, and and we have difficulty getting a supply of labor. Uh, and then Jack's wife, and they were very close. It's his second wife, Charmian, and she had a few statements. She felt that those out in the fields were not racially on her level. But I think Jack London saw out there versions of himself having toiled um, in the in the jute mill and the cannery and the laundry and so on, and he saw people who were kind of mirrors of his own earlier life. So he wrote some stories that were pretty critical of the of the regime of the the grandchildren of the original missionaries who had become the owners of of the Hawaiian islands and had had dethroned their rightful queen, Queen Liliokalani, put her in prison for several months, kept her pretty much the rest of her life in, under house arrest. Jack saw this as, as the operation of imperialism, and he didn't like it, and he made that clear in, in his writings. He used the word feudal, as in Middle Ages, but what Hawaii looked like was a, a 20th century version of, of a new feudalism. Um, so if you if you read what he has to say um, pretty pretty closely, you see a lot of um, a very incisive critique of social arrangements 
and a call for change. I think he'd do very well in contemporary times. I mean, your description of his early life and then his uh, experience in Hawaii is no different than what's still going on today with uh, migrant workers in the United States and the conditions. And um, I think he'd be uh, quite a visible activist myself because um, we're we're still talking about this. (laughs) Well, great. I mean, isn't that amazing? A century plus later, here it is back back with us. And in fact, uh, what what brought me into this project was the the drumbeat that we are now in a second Gilded Age. Yes. Second Gilded Age. Yes. But, oh, what does that mean? You know, be below all the glitter and shine, things aren't so good. Uh, you ask a, um, ask a woman if she wants a piece of gilded jewelry, um, and <laughs> after a, a few seconds pause, it's, <laughs> no, I want, I want 24 carats. I want the real thing. Right. So underneath, um, we're seeing this god-awful inequality of incomes um, and and just what you said, immigrant, um, non-documented um, workers throughout our country, um, not not well-paid at all. And, um, you know, Jack London, in those, those toilsome jobs of his, called himself and others who were trapped in those jobs work beasts. So work beast. Um, now in our gig economy, there's something, as you may know this, called task rabbit. Yeah. So you, you hope for some, you know, some pickup jobs along the way. I said, yeah, we've gone from beast to bunny, but it's no better. Uh, and and we've, we've got a lot of work to do once again. Yeah, this really ticks me off. Um, we... <laughs> Um, very intellectual, very uh, intuitive individuals, female and male, throughout the decades uh, have seen, uh, have been able to see through the eyes uh, uh, similar to, to Jack London. Um, what, what kills me is we're talking 100, 200 years later, uh, the same problems exist in the United States, the same racial tendencies, the same racial uh, dynamic is, is still here, and and I just don't get it. I mean, when the heck are we going to learn that we keep going uh, back to the same type of behavior and and uh, and mindset? <laughs> when are we going to learn that there there are problems that need to be solved? And and if we can put a man on the moon, if we can get real close to to um, curing some sorts of cancer, why the hell can't we figure out what's socially right? I, I couldn't be with you more strongly endorsing you. We could sing a duet on, yeah, these, on these things. Yeah. On these things. <laughs> I mean, me throw, up, <laughs> throw up your hands. One thing I would say uh, in reference to, to, to London he knew, and, and, and as you know, he, the politics he embraced was socialism. Sure. And, he, and it boiled down to two points. Uh, one, he would say, aren't we social? Aren't we social beings? Don't we want to live together as mm. in a society? And mm. two, don't we want a better organization than the one we have yeah. that's full of all kinds of, of you know, crime and mm-hmm. mistakes and so on and so on? Those two points. So... So as as 
socialist, but he knew it wouldn't happen right away, um, that it might take even centuries. He, he looked back, um, and his, his uh, sort of colleague, Upton Sinclair, also looked back to the, the, the very first centuries of recorded history uh, to, to trace out conditions of work and life and who did well and who was enslaved. Uh, and uh, London, who, as you know, was an, an amateur boxer and, and such a, 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 you know, a fan of boxing, and so was President Theodore Roosevelt, and oh, yeah. so were a lot of the elites. Oh, yeah. uh, so there was a boxing match, um, I think in the 1880s, um, Sullivan versus Kilrain, mm. and it lasted something like 75 rounds. <laughs> so, so that was a, a kind of marquee mm. measure of the timeline for people to really, really recognize what le- needed to be done. And, and London wasn't in any way convinced that it would be in his lifetime. He thought uh, this was a long process, but you couldn't give up. You had to work on it uh, unrelentingly, and he did. I bet he would have had a great time at the Norton Alley fight. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. so- social change, social change. Um <sighs> Is is was there a cry for social change back then, as it appears to be now? Look at look at what Bernie Sanders has done. Ab- and- absolutely, and there and there was Greg. I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, uh, the cry for social change. London was one of of a of a good number of reformers, and in fact, the socialist political agenda. Was was getting a lot of traction, and and under the the uh, sort of charisma of Eugene Debs, Victor Eugene Victor Debs, mm. uh, and so it was it was it was growing, and there were reformers, who, who, some of whom Jack London knew. He, for instance, he went through Chicago uh, on a tour, and he stopped at Jane Addams's Hull House, uh, and and that center in Chicago was a, an engine for social change. So many reformers kind of, kind of got, their, got their chops in, uh, in Adams's Hull House, uh, inventing the, the field of social work, crying out for reform. It was, it, was, uh, it was on the national, call it radar, even though that's a term that they wouldn't have had then. Uh, an example, uh, Upper-middle-class people sent their kids to school, of course. They thought it was a good thing that the children of immigrants or the poor sent their kids into the mills and factories. They thought that those children uh, learned discipline and built a good character that way, along with with, uh, helping with their wages to support their families. But the reformers were urging those very upper-middle-class people to rethink this priority because what it meant for the future would be a massive number of adults who were illiterate, had no job skills or skills of mathematics at all. What would they turn to, if not crime, to support themselves? Uh, you know, and as of 1890... 
Jacob Rees, the Danish immigrant himself, and a journalist, was hauling those heavy cameras up tenement slum steps to photograph some of these immigrant families living, you know, umpteen to a room, uh, doing their best. But it was it was a horrible slum situation in America's cities, and Reese could point out this is where disease breeds. Um, and it's coming to the street nearest you. Who's in your house washing your dishes, cooking your meals? Who's in the stable uh, tending your horses? Uh, and so the the point the point was was gradually soaking in that there's there's a common good, uh, and it's self interest combined with altruism. So there were reformers, and they were getting the message out. And let me say, um, this is a little plug for for uh, something in my ebook version. I was able to get access to some archival motion picture footage of Jack London's very time and day. And you read along, and here is is a uh, a motion picture of of girls working in a cannery. And there's a fire, and they can't get out, and it's a terrible tragedy. Now, that that footage was was part of a of a longer, much more complex story of love and desire and jilting and cheating. Uh, but that's what people would go to an evening uh, at the movie theater, and they would see, and they would see these vulnerable young girls uh, and being treated so callously and so dangerously by the factory owner who provided no exits for them. Uh, and this was, of course, a reaction in film to the 1911 notorious Triangle Fire uh, in New York, in which in which all these these young women, girls who were working sewing blouses, uh, were trapped, and so many died. So it's just to say, reform was was in the air, and as you know, the Gilded Age sort of gave way to what's called the Progressive Era. Um, the the reform efforts did um, did succeed to a remarkable degree, and I would I would go further and say. Some of the issues Jack London was caring about, including wages, um, pay for overtime if there was real overtime, and and safety, and chi- children in school, all that kind of thing. That's part of of the New Deal package. Yes. Uh, in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. So yes, it it took a long time. Uh, what we've forgotten is what we had gained. Uh, instead of building on our gains, we've kind of regressed, as what you were, we were, we were saying a few minutes ago. And uh, and as uh, as one writer said to me, we've got to do it all over again. And I'm sorry to say, I think it's true. Yeah. My last question: Do you think there's hope for mankind? <laughs> <laughs> You know, am am I going to have to die uh, leaving this earth um, uh, just freaked out about what this life is going to be in 30, 40 years for my grandkids? And, and I think we ju- without hope, we're nothing. Uh, well, um, I agree about I agree. With okay. That. Yes. Do we do and we I- have do we have hope? I mean, I'm going to 
I'll, I'll quote uh, Peter Glick, who runs the Pacific Institute out on the West Coast, and he's all about water resources and environmental um, uh, improvement and what needs to be done. And and uh, he gave a talk here at, in Nashville a couple of years ago, and, and he said he said he believes that when people have enough information uh, and know what the stakes are, they'll do the right thing. Hmm. So I, I think of, of that statement, and I hold on to it. And, you know, I'm a classroom teacher. So, so I have got this, as a friend said, um, teaching is an act of faith in the future. Yeah. So, so teaching and, and bottling wine and liquor... I think those are actually You make your own wine, do you? Do you make your no, own wine? No, no. I, I just mean, you know, you, <laughs> you put the cork in and you let it sit for a couple of years or ten years yep, or whatever. Yep. Uh, and, then uh, you, or, and, and then you let it breathe. And you let it breathe. Uh-huh. But then we are in the land of, of Jack Daniels, so yeah. so we're talking about uh, 10, 15 so, years, some 20 years, the single barrel. So, so you're that's a, real future. So you're a <laughs> bourbon drinker. I'm afraid I am. Oh, I love you. <laughs> I my my daughter and her husband, they've been married a couple of years. They're in uh, Charleston, South Carolina and oh, oh my god, how are they doing in this flood? Time? They're in they're in um uh, uh Mount Pleasant, which is okay. outside of Charleston. They're fine. Uh, oh, and and good, I, I told them when they moved, I said, if you if you rent or buy anything on ground level, I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> you you get something at least one or two stories up, because <laughs> eventually, honey, that part of the world is going to be underwater. But anyway, yeah. um, no. And, and uh, every uh, every Christmas and my birthday, I get a nice uh, I, I get a nice little. Uh, uh, Leader of uh, wonderful bourbon. Uh, Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, <laughs> right. right. Well, well I, and I'm saying, let me just tell you, I used to think uh, in retirement I wanted to have an Airstream trailer in Key West until I realized South Florida is a goner. <laughs> it is a goner. And, and I'm sorry to say, but uh, the days of uh, $3, $4 for uh, uh, a gallon of gas is going to be soon forgotten in, in, a, in a few years. You just wait. Um, right, the short memory. You know what? You know what? I'm thankful for Cecilia. I'm thankful that I'm 61 and I've only got so many years left on Earth. <laughs> now listen, you. No, 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 no. I live for every day, and yes, okay. I want to live long. Um, don't Good. necessarily want to be in diapers, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> hey, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we, um, you know what, uh, uh, folks, uh, this has been a pretty, uh, pretty crazy and, and wonderful discussion with Cecilia Tishi, whose uh, uh, new novel, Jack London, A Writer's Fight for a Better America. Um, Jack London, if you look at the book cover, um, the cover really uh, embodies, uh, I, I think, the persona of Jack um, I think he would have done very well in contemporary times. Uh, I, I think he could have even run for office. He's got that Jack Kennedy look. You know, he's a very handsome man, athletic. Uh, uh, and, uh, and he, uh, you know, he started out with nothing and uh, has become an icon. Um, Cecilia Tishi, it is Tishi, I hope. It is indeed. Oh, good. And so your husband's Italian? That's Russian, would you believe? Oh, it's Russian. In, in Russian, and it's and I know Grasso. Yeah, oh, or and I'd, I'd say Tichi, Tichi. Uh, <laughs> okay. So it's Russian. Cool. 
it's Russian and it's and it's pronounced. Uh, we don't have uh, the word in English. It's more like tishi, uh, and it tishy. means yeah, ah. yeah. So I'm oh, people cool. think. People think it's either going to be Italian or Japanese. Yeah. Well, cool. <laughs> and then I walk in. <laughs> well, that's – hey, I think that this has been a nice talk, uh, Cecilia. Um, and, and just so everybody knows, <laughs> you're a professor of English <laughs> and American studies at Vanderbilt. And you're still working. And I hope you continue to write. Um, and I th hope you continue that – you've got an absolutely beautiful smile, by the way. Uh, you do. You do. Well, well thank you, and, and I think uh, life does give me a good deal to smile about, and I hope it gives you and your listeners a lot to smile about. Even I, time. I laugh every day. All right. All right. <laughs> Craig, this has been fun. Thank <laughs> you really very much, it. Cecilia. This has been a kick in the rear end for me. Thank you very and I'll much. And I'll be sending you a book when they come from the printer. <laughs> you got okay. it. I will, I will be patient. Great. <laughs> thank Great. you very much. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.